Okay, uh, welcome to the Ossington Circle. I am here with Nora Barrows-Friedman, author of In Our Power, U.S. Students Organized for Justice in Palestine. Thank you for joining us, Nora. Thank you, Justin, for having me. So tell me about In Our Power. Tell me about the process that led to this book and what it's all about and why everybody should read it. Well, so I've been a journalist covering Palestine issues and activism, dealing with Palestine issues since about 2003. But in the last six years or so, um, I've been focusing more and more on student activism, um, especially student activism in the United States and um, and really the, the rise of the solidarity movement. Um, concurrent with the the rise and expansion of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Um, And what was happening on college campuses um, close by to me in proximity, I live in the Bay Area in in Northern California, um, I I just felt was, uh, was so compelling to witness as a reporter and as someone who, you know, has, has kind of come into contact with, um, you know, Palestine solidarity movements over the years, I, I felt like this this kind of resurgence of student activism uh, on campuses was was something that should be um, looked at more carefully and and understood um, because it it is you know in the in the greatest traditions of all social justice and and civil rights movements and 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 international solidarity movements. Um, over the you know past century um, from this country, I think that that the rise of student activism in solidarity uh, with with Palestine and 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 in support of Palestinian liberation um, is really exactly along those lines, uh, really you know playing out that that tradition once more. So this is a yeah. this is one of the first powerful things that you do in the book is you place this movement in the context of other American social justice movements that had a heavy campus component, you know, the, the war, the resistance to the war in Vietnam or the civil rights movement. And you present the idea of justice in Palestine in the same framework, which I think is really powerful because we are trained to think of the situation in Palestine in terms of a conflict between two groups. You're partisan between one side or the other, and and that's how everything is always portrayed. And I think people coming to this presented it that way. And so I really like that you present it that way. And tell me how you navigate that and how you go about showing that it's one of these things and not the other. Sure. Well, as you know, as as people are are knowing more and more, um, because you know, civil society keeps hammering away at this point, which I I, I think is is really appropriate, and and especially since the rise of, of independent media and social media, um, citizen journalism, um, is that there is this inherent connection between um, what is happening here in the United States and how it affects Palestinians on the ground uh, under occupation and in in the diaspora. Um, It's not just like an ideological um, connection. You know, of course, U.S. imperialist hegemony efforts in the Middle East um, is is certainly part of that connection. But actually, real 
literal financial connections. Um, you know, the U.S. is is Israel's main benefactor, um, and that you know the 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 military budget, uh, the military aid budget that the United States keeps doling out to Israel year after year after year just keeps expanding and expanding. Um, we see you know military contractors, uh, arms dealers enjoying um, unsurpassed profits um, when they are dealing with uh, Israeli military, you know, um, uh, weapons procurement. Um, and we're also seeing it at the, the college university level here in, in the States where, you know, and, and I'm, I don't think this works at European universities, um, but in, in North American universities, uh, the uh, the the investment portfolios that universities and university systems hold um, are uh, are heavily involved and invested in um, in what in companies that do business with Israel and profit from Israel's occupation and settler colonialism um, structure. So students uh, have been saying for many years, even before, even well before the the you know, the, the formal advent of the 2005 boycott, divestment and sanctions call um, that they don't want their tuition dollars going to um, violate the human rights of Palestinians. And that and especially for, um, you know, for Palestinian students here in the United States who are in college, um, you know, the the tuition dollars that that they or their parents pay um, you know, they've been saying that they don't want that money to go to occupying, uh, you know, their cousin's house or destroying their brother's house in Gaza. Um, you know, that that there should be no way that that colleges and universities should be invested in uh, in these companies that are, are involved in criminal acts, no matter if it's in Palestine or, or anywhere else across the world. But but because Palestine, uh, the occupation of Palestine is is such, um, uh, you know, a, a responsibility of Americans mm-hmm. um, because of the financial and political alliance mm-hmm. um, that that it, it's just it's it's of course a, a natural um, relationship to be involved in in solidarity movements. So Nora, you've been a reporter in the occupied territories. I think you've you've. You've done yeah. some reporting from there. You've worked, uh, you know, you've covered so many different angles. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, is there something especially inspiring about the student movement that led you to want to write a history of it? Because I kind of view this book as a classic. Somebody says journalism is the first draft of history. And I, I really think of this book as that. It's like you're, it's the first draft of the history of, of these movements. And I think people will use this when they're writing the history of these movements in few decades so thank you but yeah i got 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 a little carried away there but uh, (laughs) but uh tell me uh tell me what is it about the student story that that drew you in so deeply enough to write a whole book about it well i as i say in the introduction it really kind of sparked a curiosity in me um during the 2010 divestment campaign at uc berkeley which um which is very close to where i live and um you know, I, I remembered going with my mom to the UC Berkeley campus in the 1980s when I was a really little kid um, 
to witness the shantytown encampments that were built by solidarity activists who were protesting the South Africa anti-apartheid movement. Um, and, and actually, you know, we're part of the, the kind of surge of activism around the country and around the world that pressured universities, you know, um, and, and of course, politicians at the very last moment um, to, to divest from, from companies that did business with South Africa under apartheid. Um, so in 2010, you know, as, as part of my kind of my own personal curiosity about what was happening, um, you know, at, at UC Berkeley and, and knowing the activists that, that were part of Students for Justice in Palestine uh, at that point, um, it was really inspiring for me to see how they were self-organizing this divestment campaign and, and, and really galvanizing not just the campus community, but people from all over the Bay Area, all over the state and all over the world um, to, to be involved and to learn more about why students were so determined um, to, to make their voices heard. Uh, to the the governing body of the University of California system and say that that they don't want their tuition dollars going to support the occupation of Palestine. Um, and in 2010, the, the first round, there was a, a bunch of, uh, you know, crazy shenanigans that, of course, were pulled by by outside groups. You know, the, the um, Israeli consulate general to the Pacific Northwest was there trying to influence um, the you know student body uh, president and and student government itself to to vote no. There was even you know an APAC spokesman who spoke against the resolution. Um, in the end, in 2010, uh, the resolution was was vetoed and that that veto was upheld. And I was at the the final hearing when the veto was upheld, and you know it, it went through like maybe eight hours of hearings through the night. And it ended at about four or five in the morning. And, you know, students were, were really disappointed that, that, um, that they didn't get this divestment resolution passed. But, but then there was like the spontaneous um, event that happened right outside the student government meeting, uh, meeting room, you know, very, very early in the morning or late at night, depending on how you look at it. Um, and one by one, students spoke passionately about how this was not a defeat, how, yes, it was disappointing, um, but they were going to be more determined than ever to get this divestment resolution passed and how it, it you know, wasn't just about this resolution. Um, and this is what I hear from students all the time, you know, six years later. It's not about getting one resolution passed and then everybody goes home and goes to sleep. It's about maintaining and and um, and growing a movement. It's about um, putting this idea that that Palestinians should have human rights out into the you know out into the world. It's it's about educating you know through these divestment campaigns. No matter no matter whether these resolutions pass or not, people have been educated. People um, know what's happening in Palestine, and and that's what's really you know terrifying to the growing Israel lobby, um, that, that students are making these connections, that, that now we have, you know, dozens and dozens of student groups from all over, you know, campuses supporting each other's divestment resolutions, um, making these connections between marginalized communities 
um, communities in struggle. And, um, and we just, you know, we, so we just see this movement kind of rolling and, and, you know, every, every spring, there's something that, um, that students like to call a divestapalooza these days, <laughs> because it's like one, uh, one campus after the next, after the next, introduces these divestment resolutions in their student government uh, councils. And, you know, even if they, like I said, even if they don't pass, they've, they've gotten the conversation going. We've been talking about it a while. Like, I think maybe it might be worth pausing just to say what the BDS movement is in case people are catching up. So boycott divestment sanctions is based on three demands that the occupation of Palestinian lands and that the wall be removed, uh, that there are equal rights for Palestinian citizens of Israel and the right of return for the several million Palestinian refugees being implemented. And then the means for that are, are completely nonviolent. And yet, uh, you know, you, you map out in the book a whole strategy for trying to make BDS movements, uh, trying to present them as if they're completely radioactive, as if they're support for some kind of violence or terrorism when they're completely the opposite of that. So maybe talk about that playbook because it's played out in case after case that you describe in the book. Yeah, and actually these these efforts at, at, at essentially criminalizing um, the, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement here in the U.S. But, and also in Canada now um, have have really taken off in the last couple of years since the the book came out. So. Um, so yeah, we see now. Just recently, we've we've seen the Israeli government itself allocate tens of millions of dollars into a new governmental ministry that is dedicated to combating BDS around the world, um, which tells you something. It's, it, it you know it tells you that that the, the Israeli government itself is terrified that BDS is working. That it's a nonviolent, uh, non-hierarchical, um, you know, completely uh, grassroots um, campaign that is growing and becoming more effective by the day. Um, and uh, you know, here in the states, we've seen just in the last uh, couple months nearly two dozen separate uh, efforts at legislation in state it, twenty-one, I think, different states now. Are introducing legislation into their um, into their state governments that are seeking to kind of do the same to criminalize um, BDS to to actually um, come up with a, a very McCarthyist plan to put activists who engage in the boycott movement or companies that have signed on to 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 not do business with Israel on a blacklist. Um, and that means that that those individuals or those companies would be um, ineligible to to contract with the state. Um, you know, this is which and these are very terrifying, of course, but it's also completely against the U.S. Constitution. Um, boycotts, divestment, and sanctions are a function of the free speech rights. Um, you know, under the First Amendment of the Constitution. And, uh, but yet it's, you know, these, so they're going to be challenged in court, of course, wherever they go, but, but it's really uh, indicative of the panic that is being induced by Israel lobby groups. Um, and, you know, on behalf of the Israeli government itself to try and persuade local legislators, federal legislators, um, 
to believe that and and university administrators at the same time to you know to make them believe that that boycotts divestment and sanctions against Israeli policies in Palestine um, are inherently uh, anti-Semitic. Um, they they smear the activists that are involved in BDS campaigns as terrorist sympathizers. Um, uh, you know, as uh, as bigots, as racists. Uh, you know, this is a this is an anti-racist movement that is using free speech to try and bring human rights to a, a population that that where the human rights have been ignored for nearly seventy years, um, and to be called racist for 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 being an anti-racist movement is more than ironic. It's it's uh, it's quite. And I, one of the one of the interviews that stood out in my mind. So you interviewed one of the advocates, one of the legal advocates for the Palestine movement involved in this group, Palestine Legal. You interviewed Liz Jackson, and one of the things that really stood out was there was a point where you where she's talking about this First Amendment free speech issue, and she says, you know, the the real problem is that these activists in BDS, in the BDS movement, aren't, shouldn't be tolerated on free speech grounds. They should be celebrated for acting yeah. on their consciences. You know, and to, she also talks about, like, it, it, we should, we need to get to a point where, where young people can put this on their resumes and say, look at all the things I've learned. Exactly. And I think eventually, you know, I mean, as we see from, from the way that history works and the way that, that social movements and civil rights movements are first disparaged and smeared and then put on a pedestal 40 years later when it's safe to do so. I mean, the same thing is going to happen with the Palestine solidarity movement. Um, you know, that the, these people, the, the people that are, are smearing activists as anti-Semites and, and bigots for, for speaking out against human rights violations, um, you know, are, they're, they're going to have a, a hard time explaining to their grandchildren why they, Oh, they're going to—they're going to say that they believed in Palestinian <laughs> right. rights all exactly. along. Right? Exactly. That's really it. <laughs> That's really it. And and you know, it's and it as a, a lot of students that I spoke to for the book, but also you know, in the subsequent um, reporting that I've done over the years, have said it's um, of course it's terrifying to be called an anti-Semite. You know, of course, Jewish students. Um, who are called self-hating Jews or traitors or anti-Semites themselves? Um, it, there's there's a real um, there's an effect to that, um, and and you know so students are are very they're very conscious of the weight of those accusations. Um, but as a lot of students that I spoke to correctly pointed out. That um, of, you know, of course, it's it's not anti-Semitic to be against Israeli policies. Um, what is anti-Semitic to them and and to many Jewish scholars is is to have Zionism and Judaism conflated to the point where anti-Semitism actually doesn't even carry the weight that it should anymore. When anti you know when anti-Semitism is thrown around to justify Israel's crimes against Palestinians, uh, what does it even mean? There's a thing happening on campuses which has a has a positive i think it comes from a good place of trying to make a campus more inclusive uh yeah. trying to think about what 
constitutes a space that's safe, right? The safe space right. kind of idea. And yeah. if we're if we're completely classist or racist or sexist in in our behaviors and in the way we conduct ourselves in the classroom and so on, then it's not really a safe space for everybody. Right. And this is a this is now increasingly something that's being used also against Palestine against Palestinian students, against pro-Palestine activists and, and activists for justice in Palestine to say that any kind of depiction of Palestinians in, in what they're going through or any kind of depictions or, or presentations of inter- Israeli violations of international law or human rights is something that makes the space less safe for Jewish students. And I wonder, you know, what you what you think of that, how you encountered that in your reporting on this. Yeah, actually, um, going back to the uh, the campaign at UC Berkeley in 2010, um, there's a perfect example of that where um, (laughs) where, you know, there were there's this here there was a hearing and students from, you know, from the the pro boycott side and the anti boycott side were were giving their you know heartfelt testimonials about why or why not the the divestment um, resolution should be passed, and you know from the the pro boycott side, of course, you had students from all backgrounds. Um, you had members of the community. Uh, you had you know really wonderful and very highly respected human rights activists and scholars talking passionately about what was happening in Palestine and and the effects that Israeli policy had on their families and their friends and their communities and and their 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 friends communities um you know and, and talking about the facts on the ground that Israel has has created and and still tries to create and on the other side you had nobody actually debating the facts um you had people um with these very heavily emotional responses um, saying that they feel like, you know, this was another Holocaust, that they feel like they're being marginalized, that, that, that students, uh, you know, who, who identify as Jewish are feeling uh, not safe on campus. And, and yeah, using that, that rhetoric of like, why can't we have a safe space and, and really, um, you know, trying to, trying to say that that by Palestinians talking about their experience and by people um, you know working in solidarity with with those students who are talking about their experience somehow is uh, is, is is an emotional um, trigger for for these students um, and and it, you know it was it it, it was uh, it was it was hard to watch and at the end actually there was um, as everyone filed out, there was a, a, pa- a piece of paper left behind. It was actually talking points given to the the anti boycott pro Israel crowd um, for how to make their statements more effective. And you know, it included things as "don't debate the facts" <laughs> and present this right and present this as like you know a, an emotional. Um, and it's uh, the amount of a, a lot of what's in your book too is the amount of effort that goes into not allowing a debate or discussion to happen, right? That's right, that's right, that's right. Because once you get someone hysterically crying about how they don't feel safe on campus because someone's talking about how it feels to be bombed um, by an Israeli warplane, 
um, you know, it, it, it really does kind of, you know, stunt the conversation and it turns it into a conversation about um, what's what's considered to be a, a safe place on campus instead of what the conversation should be and what students are pointing out, which is our university should not be invested in the crimes that are being committed. And it's a meta, it's a meta debate, right? I think one of the, stu- one of the students you, inter- you interviewed said something like, so now we're, at, instead of debating what's going on, we're debating whether we can even have a conversation about it. That's right. Which you'd think, like, in an academic setting, which universities are there for, um, to, to be told that you can't have a debate, to be told that there are certain issues that you cannot bring up in the classroom or in a student government council meeting is, is terrifying. Um, and that is happening. There, you know, there are, there are administrations that, um, that are saying, you know, we don't even want this discussion about Palestine on our campus or in our student government. Um, because it's too triggering or it's too controversial or there are both sides to the story, you know, all of these talking points to really, you know, try to effectively clamp down on on academic freedom and uh, which is very troubling. I mean, I've noticed, yeah, this doctrine of safe spaces is one of them before when when Israeli apartheid week was just starting probably 10 or 11 years ago, there was a lot of calling it a hate fest. So because if it's hate, then it's it's outside of the protections of free speech, right? If it's, it's hate. And then uh, for academic context, there's always this balance doctrine. It has to be balanced. Everything that any Palestinian says has to be balanced by some kind of Israeli government or pro-Israel kind of thing. Um, I wanted to, I want to go back because uh, I noticed on your Twitter feed that you, you mentioned this, uh, that there are Israel's devoting large amounts of monetary resources to trying to fight BDS. But there was an article that I saw on your Twitter feed by um, mainstream pro-Israel advocate uh, saying that they should back off and this is not going to help. And I wonder whether you make much of that or, or what you think of that, that d- internal debate that's going on now. Um, it's, it's really interesting to see like the, the different, um, kind of, you know, strategies being employed by, by the panicked Israel lobby organizations these days. Um, you know, at first when it came to BDS and Palestine solidarity activism, it was like, don't talk about it. It's not effective. It's not going to do anything. Um, so they ignored it. And then it became like, oh, wait, they are kind of, um, amassing more popularity and, and, oh, oh no, Palestine activism is becoming mainstream on campus. So now we have to go full throttle against it, but it's still not effective. So, you know, it's not effective. It doesn't matter. It's just symbolic and it's a hate fest and all this, but we're going to now devote, you know, the Israeli government is now pouring millions of dollars into combating it. Um, And now it's at the point where it's, it is, I think, becoming quite embarrassing to mainstream uh, Israel lobby organizations to see that these efforts are not working, that actually, you know, Palestine solidarity activism on campus is as vibrant and as expansive and as um, potent as as ever these days, even, you know, despite um, these efforts at delegitimizing these campaigns and smearing the activists who are attached to it. Um, and so I think there is some internal debate happening more often than we think about the, the tactics that, that these organizations are employing and, and the level of just hyperbolic, you know, rhetoric 
saying, you know, the, the, the accusation of anti-Semitism, I think, is really wearing thin because it's very transparent that this is the, that the BDS movement and these activists are not anti-Semites. A lot of them are Jewish. How do you explain that? Well, I've had um, I've had a I've had interesting conversations with other faculty members recently, yeah. and they're like I've heard things I haven't heard in, in in over a decade. Where you know a faculty member was saying, "Look, I am as pro-Israel as you get, but if I get called an anti-Semite one more time." Right. For you know, for saying right? some, for raising a question about right. about Israel, I am I've had it with these people. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely, uh, and I think that's happening more. And yeah, more. I, so that was uh, that was fascinating to me because I didn't I I've always wondered whether there was a limit on that. Right, right, and I think we're starting to see that limit, and they don't have any more you know arms in their arsenal. Yeah, I mean, this is all they've got. If you're call, yeah, you're right. There's nothing nastier to call someone really than right. an anti-Semite. It's like right. who wants to be um, <laughs> right. the the. The other, the other thing, at one point in the book, there's a discussion about the transformations of campuses and the, the role of the increasing role of administration, the rising uh, costs and, and escalating student debts and tuition, uh, and some of the some of the reversals of ethnic studies and the reversals of affirmative action programs. And so there's there's this broader transformation taking place in campuses that is, I think, running against some of what has given previous campus movements strength. You know, what what do you think? I mean, is this a long term trend that's working against justice in Palestine as well? Yeah, I think I think that the you know the increasing you know privatization of universities, the, the rising tuition costs. Um, the the overwhelming student debt that we have in the U.S. Um, I think that that campuses, you know, you know, especially the ones that were part of of public university systems, um, are are really struggling um, to to maintain the the face of <laughs> of the public. Um, and I think that that administrations more and more so because of the financial solvency that um, that, you know, big donors bring in and and connections with like biotech companies these days, that they're more inclined to protect the interests of corporations rather than the interests of the public good and of student education and academic freedom. Um, and I think that that students are inherently and acutely aware of this. Um, and and all across the country, you know, students are doing sit-ins and and strikes um, to protest these insane tuition hikes, um, and and the you know the federal government's total refusal to to do anything about the student debt crisis in this country, which is I think over a trillion dollars or something like that. Um, and I think that you know it it does have an effect on on ethnic studies departments. I mean, here in the Bay Area, again, uh, San Francisco State University, which was the um, the cornerstone of all ethnic studies departments in the country. There was a student strike in 1968 uh, that led to the formation of the first ethnic studies department. Um, and we see that department now being eviscerated. Something like 40% of the faculty are being laid off. Um, and, and that has, you know, it, it of course has to do with like the, you know, the rising capitalist neoliberal structure of academia these days. 
um, where, you know, ethnic studies departments are not as important as, as tech departments, as engineering departments. Um, and, and, you know, what that says about the state of academic freedom and the state of critical thought and, uh, the, the state of, of, of inquiry and, um, and, and really understanding what, what college is supposed to be there for, um, is, uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's quite a frightening time. And, you know, at the same time, students, like I said, these, these movements, these, you know, students for justice in Palestine chapters keep growing and keep accumulating, um, different alliances with different student groups. I think there's still a very vibrant campus community, um, you know, across the country where students are, are really coming to, to college to learn and, and not be, um, coddled in, in, you know, and, and I think that, um, I think it's, it's going to be, I mean, who God, this, uh, the way that <laughs> this country is going, I mean, the presidential elections, like, I just can't, I can't even go there right now to, to think of like what our future is going to look like in terms of academic freedom and the freedom of speech on campuses. Well, but, what do you mean? Bernie Sanders, <laughs> if he wins, is going to bring free tuition, right? So. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I think there, I, I, I'm, uh, I mean, Oh God, <laughs> I just can't, it, there's so many layers. Um, but you know, it looks like it's going to be either Trump or Hillary and, you know, because that, that's, that's Hillary kind of, is, Hillary is going to take the relationship to the next level. I think she's promised. Absolutely. I don't know what that's that, right. I don't know what level like that she, is. She promised her donors that she would allow, you know, tens of thousands more Palestinians to be bombed. I mean, I just can't, <laughs> where do you go? I mean, I, I, it's, it's a really sorry state of affairs. And I think that, that, the that the increased, um, this increased notion that, that our country should be more and more invested in war and less and less invested in education and public service is, uh, is frightening. It's a nightmare. Yeah. One, it struck me when I was reading your book, you know, that, that this, given the similarities between what's going on in Canada and the States and the connections between both the student organizations and the, and the, you know, pro-Israel advocacy organizations, um, that there were, I was just repeatedly struck by how many things are going on almost exactly the same, uh, in, in there and here. And you're, you're well aware of, of stuff that's going on in Canada. But, you know, one thing, um, I'm, I'm planning to have Steven Salaita on, on this podcast as well. And, uh, you know, he, he writes about the, the connections between indigenous and, and Palestinian struggles. And that was, that's been a huge theme in Canada because in Canada we are kind of living through a, a interesting indigenous resurgence. We have scholars like Glenn Coltart and Pam Palmater and Hayden King and, uh, Leanne Simpson and there, you know, there's a whole intellectual framework for decolonization that's growing and struggles over the land and demographics, demographically, the indigenous population is growing. And so it's, it's an exciting time in that, in that way. And, you know, the, the Palestine activists have always, you know, have very early on grasped the importance of that, uh, intersectionality or, you know, the, the sol- reciprocal solidarity between these uh, movements. And IAW always, you know, strives to have like to, uh, an, a, cont- a component where we're learning from 
the indigenous struggle here. Uh, and uh, and I, I, you know, the last chapter of your book includes a whole range of intersecting struggles and common causes. So I wanted you, I wanted to give give us a sense of what that looks like in this in the states south of the border. There. Yeah, it is. It's really exciting. And it, um, you know, I put that the, the chapters on specifically solidarity and, and how how these students are, are, as you said, like intersecting these these struggles. And I, I really think that it's one of the most moving um, elements of this of this movement that students are not operating in a vacuum where it's just Palestine that no one else. Students are, of course, members of their own communities and members of of you know, where they live. And, and it's, it's very easy to see the connections between, for example, um, what's happening in terms of police violence against uh, black and brown people in this country, and police and state violence against Palestinians. Um, and students have, uh, like you said, have made these connections very, very early on. Um, of course, solidarity with indigenous and migrant communities in this in this country. Um, because you know the same settler colonial forces are are at work. Well, if Trump um, is going to build that wall, he'll probably be turning to God. expertise from the from the Middle East, right? Right, exactly. And you know, and but there, like, there's a literal connection there too, because you know the U.S. Mexico wall that that we already have um, is heavily militarized, and and one of the main contractors for that wall is an Israeli company. Because who does walls the best but but Israel? Um, so students are are making these these very literal connections, um, and also you know they say over and over again that you know our activism in support of Palestinian liberation is worth nothing unless we're doing it along with other communities in similar struggle, and as long as we're putting our our you know our feet where our mouths are and 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 marching and and organizing with communities who are up against state violence or racism or Islamophobia or whatever it is, um, you know, it's, it, that's, that's an important part, a, a very essential part of, of what it means to be a solidarity activist, especially on campuses. Um, and so it's, you know, so here the, the book actually came out like right before the Black Lives Matter movement um, kind of erupted in this country, which has been one of the most beautiful things. And we see students for justice in Palestine activists, um, you know, in struggle with Black Lives Matter activists and vice versa. Um, we see students from just a, a, a plethora of different communities coming together um, to, to fight injustices, not only, you know, at the campus level, but in their local communities, whether it's like access to water, access to clean water, access to health, access to um, visibility when it comes to, to the rights of the disabled, the rights of women's reproductive, you know, like it, it just kind of runs the gamut um, because, because, you know, it's, it's clear that, that, that it's all, it's all very interconnected. It's all very intersected. Um, and, and, and to expand one movement means to expand all other movements for justice. And your book ends with advice. Uh, you collect <laughs> advice, and it's interesting because a lot of your interviews are actually with with students who kind of aged out, right? I mean, some of them yeah, are all kind of mentors now. Most of them now are <laughs> graduated. <laughs> yeah. um, so you know, you you get you get that perspective where they're giving yeah. advice. So you, if you want to just repeat some of that for 
for listeners, what, what advice do they want to pass on? Yeah, let's see if I can remember. It's a lot of don't be afraid, I think. is the main thing. I think that's really it. I think it's like, look, this is not going to be easy. You know, this is your if you choose to be a, a Palestine solidarity activist on your campus, you're going to have to develop a really thick skin against some of the most vitriolic and hateful um, attacks that, that are going to come at you. Um, but don't be afraid. Don't be deterred. Keep going. And I think that's the theme of, of what Palestine Solidarity Activism on campuses is all about. It's, it's about not being afraid to speak up. It's about not being afraid to organize in the face of a, a ridiculous amount of opposition. It's about not being afraid to stand up to your administration or to the, the campus police sometimes um, that want to shut down events related to Palestine. Um, and, and it's about, it's about, you know, really building a community. It's about building a, a, a structure of support and solidarity. And now that, you know, you mentioned Palestine legal, we, there are actually, you know, like institutions now, Palestine legal, um, which is a, a legal advocacy organization, which works with students across the country, um, to, to, to help them, um, know their, their legal rights, uh, to offer legal support and advice, um, and sometimes help represent them in, in, you know, in, in administrative proceedings. Um, they, you know, they do a lot of work these days reminding administrations that academic freedom and the freedom of speech is still a thing, um, which sounds like a completely ludicrous way to spend time as, as a lawyer, but it really, you know, it's gotten to the point where this has to be done where administrations don't understand that, that there are consequences to trying to censor uh, student activism and free speech on their campus. Um, and, and that the First Amendment still exists as far as we know. Um, and so, you know, for students to be able to have that kind of support um, and to work with other students, I mean, now we have a, a, a national Students for Justice in Palestine structure that kind of is, is the you know, umbrella organization, if you will, um, to over 150 different chapters around the country. And there's a, an annual national SJP conference where students are, you know, they, they gather in the hundreds um, to, to learn about each other's struggles, to strategize for the future. Um, and they're doing this all on their own. I mean, these are like 18 to 25 year olds, you know, really doing this so important it's really impressive. I mean, God, if I remember what I was doing at 18, it was like nothing what these kids are doing. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, one thing that I tell young people uh, who are working on Palestine is if you've done this, it's like, it's like Superman is, is from a planet that has much higher gravity than Earth. <laughs> and it's kind of, Palestine activism is like that. It's like, if you can do this, everything else that you do is easy compared to yes. this. There's Absolutely. any media work that you do, any argument that you have to present, you're never going to face the amount of opposition for every detail. You're never going to face the level of questioning and testing and challenge that right. you will on this issue. So do this and then like yeah. you, you can just have the easiest ride uh, right. once exactly. you move on to if you ever move on or yeah, I mean, doing anything that's, else. That's what Liz Jackson said in, in the book. She's from Palestine Legal. She said like, you know, they actually, students come out of this, you know, with an amazing 
set of skills. They know how to write press releases. They know how to deal with the media. They know how to fundraise. They know how to, you know, go up against an administration. They know how to use their legal rights. They know how to find how to use their legal rights. Like there's an, an incredible array of skills that you come out of, of, of being an activist with on this issue. And, and yeah, as you said, like, you know, they, they, they wish they could put it on their resume. I mean, they should be able to. Um, and, and I think one day it will be, it will be celebrated that, that they are part of this growing movement for justice. Yeah. And then people will want to say how soon they, how early they were. Right. So, exactly. So 2016 <laughs> is still early. And, uh, exactly. And, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Nora. Oh, thank you so much. Jessica.